We are live. Welcome to the Carl Vibe Show. We have a very special guest today. I'm really excited. This has been a long time coming, you guys. Uh, we have met on different paths and different shows. Uh, today, my guest is going to be Mark Turner. He is a uh, prolific blogger. He has guest appeared on several different uh, live shows and podcasts, uh, also as a trained and experienced remote viewer uh, with some psychic experience and also possibly a, a UFO experiencer and witness as well. It's going to be very interesting to talk to him. He's also a U.S. veteran of the United States Navy, and he served during the Persian Gulf War. And uh, so without further ado, let's go ahead and bring aboard uh, Mark Turner. I'm Mark, welcome. Uh, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Uh, I think it's going to be just like hanging out as old friends. I feel like we've met on all these other shows so many times now, and there's so much that I have uh, to talk to you about that I want to pick your brain about. I feel like our, our experiences are so similar in a lot of ways, but uh, uniquely different. So Mark, uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing all right. Thanks. Uh, glad to be here. And like you said, uh, it, <laughs> like every show we've appeared on, I've been sitting here nodding the whole time about everything you said. So uh, <laughs> I think we think uh, very much alike. Definitely. So, Mark, uh, everybody has kind of a story of how they get into the interesting type of stuff, like whether it be the paranormal, uh, the UFO uh, stuff, ufology and UFO research or remote viewing and psychic stuff. Some people are into the mystical and meditation stuff and find their way over here onto this channel. So, uh, Mark, what is kind of your background that got you into this? Was it, did it start as a curiosity and then you became an explorer? Or did you have some experiences uh, as a, as a kid growing up that kind well, of fascinated um, you? I'm, I'm kind of the guy who, uh, who's willing to poke the bear. If the bear needs poking, I'm going to be the guy to go out there and poke it. Right. So if, uh, if, if I'm out in a crowd or something and something happens, you see something, and everybody says, oh, I don't believe that's what it was that I saw. I'm going to be the one who's like, oh, heck yeah, it was. You know, that really happened. And uh, and I'm going to push people on that. So um, so I've, I've always been very curious, sort of a investigative mind. I don't I don't like people pulling things over on me. Right. So uh, if you say that something is one particular way, I'm going to say, prove it. You know, I want to see right. it. I want to I want to understand. I don't I don't like the idea of anybody, you know, trying to. Um, to pull a fast one on me. So if I see a light in the sky or um, have a strange feeling, maybe a smell that comes out of nowhere, which uh, seems to happen sometimes when I'm around uh, haunted places, uh, mm -hmm. I want to know why. It's like, is what can I rule out here? You know, is it an airplane? Is it a, a UFO? Who knows? But um, I am very much a person who wants to find stuff out himself. So um, I would say my, my kind of journey on this whole thing uh, really began when I was in high school and I, I started uh, keeping a dream journal. Uh, mm -hmm. And every night um, I would dream and then I would uh, write this down in my little notebook uh, before I went to school. And I started to notice that so many things that had happened during the school day were things that I had dreamt about. And so uh, this really changed my mind about how does time work? How is it possible that I could see these um, these events before they actually happen? So uh, I I was really intrigued by that. And, and that really just started to make me pay attention to all these kind of things that uh, probably a lot of people 
also could experience, but but really just kind of don't pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, see, it all started for me when I was a little kid having kind of a recurring dream as well. I've started doing sort of a series on this channel where I just do a solo show where I'm trying to like tell all of my weird paranormal experiences <laughs> growing up. And it was like that. I was, you know, alone a lot as a kid playing down in the basement where my parents owned a restaurant. Sometimes I'd fall asleep down there and uh, it, it was so bizarre. I'd have this recurring dream where it was like a portal would open up in the wall and I would walk through into like kind of an alternate dimension with like a checkerboard floor and this uh, a really purpley blue colored, like almost like Aurora Borealis type sky. Uh, like almost like an astral plane type vibe to it. And then there would always be these stone pillars and strange stuff. But I'd have this dream over and over and over again. And I think my fascination with with dreams and like, what are the things in the dreams made out of? Like if you go pick up something, an object in the dream, or even a person comes up and talks to you, it's always fascinated me. Like how much of that is my own subconscious? Like capable of projecting an entire realm around myself and then put myself in there. And I even think I have a body. I, th you know, I have hands, there's objects, there's like a whole scene, sometimes houses. And ultimately it's just like a dream. And my fascination with that has always been a little bit deeper than a lot of people around me. I think they just, they just go to bed and it feels good and they dream and they're like, well, that was a weird dream, you know, but sounds like you're kind of the same. You started having dreams that seem to come true almost or have some deja vu maybe tell us some stories about that yeah i mean it's pretty much deja vu um i would uh, i would wake up i would write down these these scenes that i'd seen in my dreams and then um and then when they happened of course during the day like um like for instance i took auto mechanics in high school and um one dream i had i was uh sitting in the front seat of a car looking at somebody I, who i thought was my brother and we were adjusting uh, like the uh, shifter in this uh, old Camaro or something. And uh, and it happened. And um, during the day, I'm sitting there in the front of this Camaro that we we pulled up at the auto mechanics uh, garage. And I'm looking at this guy and uh, I suddenly realized, wow, he looks a lot like my brother. <laughs> so uh, I had gotten, gotten the, the identification wrong in my dream. But that scene had taken place and I had written it down. Um, before I went to school. So as I said, that just blew my mind that how is it that I'm seeing things before they happen? And mm -hmm. is it because I'm special? I didn't really consider myself special. I don't consider myself special, but it did make me think that um, our ideas of time are really limited, you know? Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but studying your dreams, I think is a fantastic way of increasing your psychic um, ability and knowledge, because I think that so much um, so much of that information is in the dreams that uh, you can you can you know bring up to the surface. And the more you work with your conscious mind and your unconscious mind, um, you become a very um, powerful person. I think being able to to really utilize these skills that um, that I think everybody has. Yeah, I think even just like you're saying, the act of writing it down or keeping a journal suddenly be, is it just even that one extra step of being mindful of your own right. inner workings and your own thought yes. processes and your own experience in reality beyond just uh, taking everything at face value for granted. Just that user interface from when you wake up in the morning and go through your day and then when you fall asleep at night, everybody just puts that in this 
uh, bucket like it. Well, that's just like hallucinations or some subconscious figments, yeah. you know. But when you start to write it down and you start to pay attention or meditate, you realize this interdimensional levels aspects of of altered states of consciousness that are really phenomenal and interesting and uh, <laughs> tied into a lot of interesting things. It it still blows my mind how recently scientists thought that the dreaming state was just your it was it was a some kind of biological process where where the mind was figuring out where to you know put these uh the, the events of the day stored in memory and everything and it is completely completely different from that it is so much more so uh, i think that that is really a uh, a, a frontier that is just ripe for discovery even now there is so much uh that we can learn about ourselves just by studying dreams so, so you started writing things down in your in your book and then you noticed that there was congruencies from the dreams and then things started to happen in in the real world that seemed like yeah. almost precognitive from the dream happening so what what's some stuff that happened there well um Similar to that, I can think of one thing, like what, right when I was in the process of writing down my dreams, still in high school, I remember being at lunch one day and suddenly uh, being very concerned about uh, a volcano erupting. And uh, I was like, this is going to happen. This, I don't know what's going on. I got, um, I got a little concerned. And I told my buddies at the lunch table that uh, I get the feeling this volcano is going to explode or something. And then a couple of days later, uh, this volcano in Colombia uh, actually did erupt. And uh, I thought, well, how did I, how did I know that that was going to happen? You know, I, I, I've always been the kind of guy who likes to read newspapers, even when I was a kid. Um, but I mean, I don't think there was any real um, run up for that particular eruption. So um, that uh, I started to realize when I started paying attention, more attention to those little, um, you know, a little intuition, a little bit of nudge, like, hey, there might be something going on here that, uh, often they would uh, lead me in the right direction or give me information that I wouldn't have ordinarily had. So, hmm. so yeah. you feel like kind of that upbringing and like keeping the journal and stuff like that. My mom did that too. She had me do like a free writing for some reason. And I think it was, you know, before video games and things, it was like something <laughs> to keep me busy. <laughs> so she would put me down and it was like, maybe even something she saw on the Oprah Winfrey show. I don't know, but she'd be like, <laughs> it was really great. It's helped me a lot. This kind of stuff. She would sit me down and say, as soon as you pick up the pencil and it touches the paper, you can't stop writing. You have to just come up with a story wow. out, of, out of your imagination on the fly. And it's so funny how much that has helped me, you know, with my career being a YouTuber and stuff where I'm able to hit record on the camera and spill out, you know, like a full minute. And it almost feels like in that moment uh, that uh, that flow state kicks in and there's this uh, deeper wisdom that takes over. And it's almost like I'm a witness to what's going on and the words just flow out and it's just meant to happen you know and there's these phenomenal experiences like that where you're almost just kind of a passenger along for the ride and if you pay attention to that just like you're dreaming and keeping a journal uh and noticing that you realize that your life is a lot more dynamic and, and connected like you said and you keep bringing up time so what is it about these experiences that makes you question the nature of Time, Mark. That's a really interesting thing. Well, you know, the conventional wisdom is that uh, time is a uh, is a linear thing that goes from the 
past to the, the to the present to the future, and um, and we're really only aware, honestly, of of the now. And you know, I've read uh, stories from books about from mystics and everything that talk about how time is doesn't honestly exist that everything is now and you've probably heard that before you know um yeah the, the gurus say the time the, the only thing that exists is now and if you think about like when you can affect anything it's it's actually right now in the present moment but uh i think that if you work a little bit with your psychic abilities you start to realize that uh your definition of now can change a little bit and um, the past and to some extent the future are available to you. And that's kind of what happened, I think, in my dream journals where I was looking ahead and seeing things uh, that may or may not have been decided at that time, you know, that this was going to happen. I think that um, I think in life we tend to make um, agreements with each other, um, maybe not necessarily consciously, but subconsciously to um, to get together or do certain things. I think, I think there's a lot of behind the scene back channel communication between mm. people that some people probably aren't even aware of that, um, you know, that, that I think that kind of leads to, um, you know, these, these funny coincidences where you're walking down the street and you bump into somebody that you've been meaning to talk to, right? There's, I think there's some kind of um, communication that goes on at a deeper level. Uh, where we're always collaborating on like what's going to happen and what we're going to do. And and maybe that's what it was that I was tuning into, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting because uh, in the, in the dreamscape, it's almost a deeper level of that because if you're, if you're talking to another person in a dream, you really are kind of just talking to yourself unless another entity or consciousness has stepped in there and is formed up as an apparition within a dream, you know? And so when you're, and when you bring that into the real world, we think of our consciousness as just being inside of our mind and our thoughts being just sort of like a, a little stage contained like in a fishbowl in there. Mm -hmm. uh, that's only a prism that we can see, you know. Uh, but right. the truth is, is that when you get into these psychic uh, informational experiences and these data downloads, you realize some of these people that do the remote viewing sessions will even get into the almost the mind of the target sometimes and the individual Absolutely. and read their, their thoughts and their emotional state and how they're frustrated about things and how they're maybe even have some sort of a disorder or mental health problem. It's very interesting when you realize that what we think is such a private life, what we think is just like, Oh, this is something that happened a year ago. Now it's over and gone in the past. There are people like you out there that have, uh, have remote viewing experiences that kind of seem to transcend that where you're able to look through the prism from multiple different angles, almost like a kaleidoscope looking through time uh, from all those different perspectives and seeing things that you shouldn't be able to see from where you're sitting. So how did you get into remote viewing from just having these dreams and kind of psychic experiences growing up. And that's okay if it's a long story because we've got time here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've got no uh, hard stop here today. So I'm happy to talk uh, until I uh, until I get hoarse here. But um, I think that uh, my exposure to remote viewing was uh, pretty much like a lot of Americans where uh, it was late night talk show, right? The Art Bell show um, mm. was going on in mid-90s and... Uh, 
you know, back when I was younger, I was willing to not go to bed at 10 o'clock at night, but, you know, stay up and listen to it a little bit longer. And, uh, and he had some, uh, some of the army remote viewers, uh, that would appear as guests on the show, uh, like mm. Ed Dames and, uh, Lynn Buchanan and, uh, Paul Smith and Joe McMonagall. And I'm, I would listen to some of those. And of course, um, Ed Dames was always considered like the doom and gloom sort of remote viewer who, seemed to always show up with uh, the latest disaster that he was trying to talk to everybody about. And, uh, you know, the time would come and go and nothing would happen. And so um, I was like, I don't know if I necessarily believe everything that he's saying, but there was one time when, um, when Art Bell mentioned that he had tried remote viewing and it worked for him. And something about that made it sound like, well, you know, that is, um, that sounds like it's it's legitimate that he actually tried it. And and then a guest like Joe McMonagall would come on and talk about things. And I would learn a little bit about um, some of his background. You know, he he earned a legion of merit from the army. Yeah. And that is a very rare, very highly prized um, uh, award that they don't just give away to anybody. So the fact that he earned something like that immediately caught my attention. You know, like you said, I'm a Navy veteran. I understand how certain things work. And, and then the fact that, that the army would be involved in this at all. Right. I had, I had spent four years in the Navy. I knew how like conservative the military was. Everybody's looking out for their own career and nobody wants to cross any lines that would, that would, you know, just, just, um, discourage them, I guess, or, or keep them from, from being promoted. But here's the army with this unit that was doing psychic stuff. Right. And I looked into it and it, and some of the documents were out there. The CIA, I think already posted some of these things on the website. It had gotten declassified. And I said, you know what, there's gotta be something to this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you are familiar with the whole story about how the unit got started, but uh, there was a real concern because the Soviets at the time were pouring all kinds of money into this research. And uh, the American intelligence uh, community knew that they would not be throwing this kind of money at anything unless it was doing something for them. Right. Right. So uh, it sort of became like a psychic arms race where uh, we had to get a team to figure out what they could see. I think that that was the idea. It was sort of like uh, we call it um, like comment or something, communications intelligence, where you're you're trying to see where. Uh, the leaks are happening. So uh, that was really how it all got started. They, they wanted to get a group of people who were psychic together uh, in the unit and see what, what, we're, what our exposure was basically. Right. So, uh, so that caught my attention. And, and then I, um, I live in North Carolina. I happened to go to a workshop that Joe McMonagall um, gave at the Rhine Research Center, which is just down the road in Durham. And it was a it was a week long a weekend workshop. So it wasn't like officially formal training or anything, but uh, but it was enough to um, really just blow my mind away because he had um, he gave us a number of targets and they were in this double wrapped opaque envelopes. And all of a sudden I was, you know, sketching things and writing things that I knew I hadn't seen before. Mm. And uh, once once you realize that you can do something like that. Uh, there's, there's no going back. There's no going back to say, Oh yeah, that's all just nonsense. But I mean, when, when it's staring you right in the face, you go, my goodness, I can't believe that I knew something that I had no physical way of knowing. So it is just, it's totally mind blowing. Yeah. And Joe McMonagall, he's somebody I just, uh, am going through and almost done with his 
personal biography, his autobiography. And it's, it's so amazing. And I, he doesn't even scratch the surface in there about, he just says, you know, I did a series on uh, Japanese television and da, da, da. And he barely touches on it in a paragraph. But the truth is, is that guy did remote viewing on live, like live TV, basically on a news channel, looking for missing persons and had a really high success rate. Now, the thing about remote viewing is it isn't 100% perfect, but at the same time, nothing is. It doesn't matter how good of an expert you are in science to be statistically significant. You only have to have results that come back over 20%. And there's mm -hmm. friends of ours, Mark, that have remote viewing uh, records that are over 80% accurate at this point. It blows my mind. And Joe McMonigle is one of those people, like you said, He's been given awards because he's found missing persons. He's worked in counterterrorism cases. He's mm -hmm. uh, um, he's found uh, kidnapped and abducted abducted people mm -hmm. and been critical in helping rescue those people when they had no idea where they'd been taken. Uh, it's very fascinating. So, uh, Mark, have you done anything with your psychic abilities or remote viewing professionally? Or are you working or involved with any groups that are doing it right now? Well, um, I've kind of um, played around with remote viewing, I think, since that workshop back in 2006. Uh, I have taken basic CRV training from uh, from Paul Smith, and I've done training, like I said, a workshop with Joe McMonigle, and also a week-long uh, training with Angela Thompson-Smith. And actually, I have uh, a session from that uh, that I'd be happy to show you if you're interested. But yeah. um, I, don't, I don't consider myself... Uh, to be an operational remote viewer, because I think that uh, it requires a track record of um, really uh, being committed to that. And uh, I'm the kind of guy who is into so many different things. I have not honestly carved out the time to sit down and practice because that's the thing that is the only thing you can do, honestly, to, to make yourself a better remote viewer. Um, it's just all practice and um, and learning how your mind works. So um there haven't been any uh, cases where I've been invited in to work things, but honestly, I'm, I'm open to it. And uh, I hope one day to actually to do some operational work. So Mark, you've got, uh, you said you've got some things that you could share with us, maybe some remote viewing sessions that you've got that you could share. Yeah. And then also you mentioned before the show that you might even have a little remote viewing session or experiment for yeah. people that watch this video to try at home or uh, some recommendations for people to get started. So that's thank really you. cool. Yeah, thank so, you for reminding me. Let's yeah. uh, let's go ahead and spring this on everybody. Yeah, uh, let's, watching. let's have uh, some fun. Bye. So that's the one thing is that everybody, Mark, I, I think they have two responses. They either go, and they, they just think it's bull crap. You know, they just <laughs> scoff it off and they just ignore it like it's kooky woo-woo. Or they immediately say, okay, well, then read my mind. And they think that you're like some kind of a circus freak. They, <laughs> they don't understand the methodology and the modality behind it. They don't understand the double blind method and how you can't just like yeah. sit down and do it for yourself, you know, just yes. like that. So yeah, you're going to take us through that and kind of break down some of those barriers. I'm super excited to do this. right. All right. Now, so, so. so I'm going to show everybody this uh, there. I have, I have something, I have something in this bag. Okay. Right. There's something okay. in this bag and I'm going to set it down here and I want everybody to sort of, um, quickly clear their minds, sort of um, think about what might be in that bag. And if you want to put your comments in the, in the chat window or something, um, you can do that. And then at the end of our talk here, I will reveal what's in the bag and we'll see uh, how well people do with this. Okay. 
Okay. And it's actually, you know, it might actually be better if you um, you think about it now and then you turn your attention back to what we're talking about and and kind of let that percolate a little bit in your head. Because uh, I, I will just say I immediately doubt and I'm like, OK, I think I'm 100 percent wrong right off the bat, but I'm willing to be completely wrong for like a year straight at this. I really want to learn how to do remote viewing. But I did right right off the bat as soon as like almost before you've been reached over for the bag. It was like I saw something in my mind, almost like a slideshow, like that. Right. And I was like, "Hmm, I wonder if that's what it is." You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was really interesting. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, so this is great because um, this is a very simple exercise, right? Uh, it is remote viewing because you don't know what's in the bag, um, so you're blind to it. Um, it would be more like a training thing because I just, I obviously know what's in the bag. Right. But um, for those people who say, well, I don't believe in this or whatever, um, give it a try. Uh, you might surprise yourself. And I'm not going to reveal what it is until uh, the end of the show where we can um, show everybody at once. But um, the way to um, to really, you know, make this real for you is to do it yourself. So um, I bet you we're going to have some viewers who know what's in this bag and uh, might surprise themselves when they when they discover that. So there's another thing you mentioned, Carl, I want to um, I want to bring up the fact that you are willing to be wrong. Yeah, that that is a key thing to remote viewing, because uh, if you if you're you're pretty much like imagine you sit down at a table, you've got a pile of blank paper in front of you. You've got a, a serious looking monitor sitting across the table from you. Right. And there might be a whole lot on the line. There might be a missing person or something that you that you got to find. Um, if you are holding on too tightly, um, uh, you're not going to get any kind of data, right? You're going to have a horrible, you're going to have a horrible time. So you're putting yourself out there. Uh, your, your conscious mind has no idea what it is it's trying to do. And your ego might be, uh, getting in the way saying, all right, you know, I, I, this is all bogus. I'm not going to come up with anything or, uh, you know, how could I possibly know this information? You're, you're putting yourself out there. It's a very vulnerable place to be. So uh, part of the mindset that you really kind of have to get into is I'm not at all invested in this particular session. I don't mm -hmm. care whether I get anything or not. I'm just going to go with whatever I've got. And then you keep it a very loose sort of um, feel to it. So when you when you start to, to ratchet down those stakes in your head, you can uh, sort of let your ego take a little side street here and then just let that that information just sort of pop into your head. And generally, when you do that, you will be much better off. So um, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's that's the perfect mindset for doing this kind of stuff. Yeah, I think so. I mean, because I can't differentiate at this point, like between an actual RV like hit or something that's real data coming through that's uh, non-local from where I'm sitting and accurate, accurate or able to be validated compared to me just imagining something or uh, the difference between me, just my day-to-day -day constant daydreaming and my mind wandering and just that monkey mind going on. You know, it's like that free association is almost a curse at the same time to where your mind can become like word salad. Like I get this initial impression that pops through and then immediately the voice of doubt kicks in and then it's like analytical overlay. Well, maybe it's this and this and this and this, and it's 
the mind wants to attack it at a million different angles. So mm -hmm. Mark, how, how do you recommend like for people starting this to just sit in that pocket or that sweet spot that you would say is effective remote viewing and be able to tell the difference there? Well, one of the uh, one of the things you mentioned is actually one of the best things you could do to improve your results. And that that is meditation, because hmm. you are learning to quiet your mind and uh, sort of um, let that that voice in your head that's trying to offer various things or, or cast doubt on you um, take a little rest. Right. And the idea is that you want to uh, learn how to um, recognize when your imagination is jumping in or, or when your uh, conscious mind is or your ego is, is trying to um, steer the direction of things and, uh, and then differentiate that between uh, from, from the data that's actually coming back from whatever the target is. So it's a very fine line and, um, and it's a constant practice of learning to differentiate your imagination from, from real data. So all that comes with practice. It, comes, uh, it helps with meditation. If you do meditation and you can quiet your mind so that you have a better idea about, you know, what might be intruding. And, um, and also, I think, um, as I mentioned before, um, working more with uh, your subconscious on a regular basis. So mm. keeping a dream journal, learning about the uh, dream signs that you might, uh, you know, uh, constantly see in your dreams. Like, what does that mean? What is that all about? Uh, that helps um, further the conversation, I think, between your subconscious and your conscious minds. And, and might give you better data during a during an RV session. Hmm. Yeah. See, I struggle with that. Like this whole cloud of thoughts that interferes. It's almost like there's a there's this freight train of thought <laughs> going down the tracks. And I'm it's really like, different. you know, I mean, you know, it's like there's human. this there's this conscious space out there in front of the plow that's kind of plowing through the snow or something on the train tracks and i'm the conductor back here and the further behind the train you go the more trash there is until you get to the caboose yeah. and it's like you have to almost think out there outside yourself just a little bit is there a type of meditation that you feel like uh is particularly effective because i know some of the new age stuff is so full of imagination and visualization and really like I find like when it comes to this kind of stuff and being open, it's more like Zog Chin, which is really just kind of like that uh, um, natural, just naked awareness of just being fully present without any of that dialogue going on. So is there any kind of like actual meditative approach that you recommend? Or I think it might be more useful just to do a non-guided meditation um, because because uh, it might actually you know plant some ideas in your head that might lead into your RV session later on. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of the stuff I do, non-guided non meditation. And, and actually to assist me with my meditation, I have a, um, a Muse headband that I wear. Uh, if you've heard about that, it is a, it gives you real-time feedback on where your brain waves are and you, you hear like a rainforest if your, your mind is scattered and if it's focused, then you hear birds, right? For instance. So, hmm. um, I find that useful to do every now and then as a cool down. Um, I know that uh, some remote viewers like Dick Allgaier like to listen to uh, theta waves, um, like uh, binaural beats uh, that, that generate theta waves. Uh, everybody's got their own sort of um, ritual. And I think that's kind of how Paul Smith describes it. It's not so much uh, the meditation, but the ritual where you're kind of like getting your getting your head in the game, you know, uh, like like an athlete would do if they're going to right before they walk out on the field. Right. They're, they're pumping themselves up. 
whatever, um, whatever it takes. You could put red shoes on or something like before you do a session, it, you, whatever works for you, it, whatever gets you in that mindset of um, being ready to uh, to go out there and do it. So um, any anything that works for you is best. And, and really, this is this is such a personal kind of um, endeavor where you really have to know what works best for you. And we are all unique and everybody has their own um, methods. And, and it just takes a, a little bit of, uh, I guess, trial and error until you find something that works for you. Yeah. In fact, there's a lot of different approaches to remote viewing. And it seems like for a time there, there's a lot of different debates going on about it. Like, you know, this is this is too uh, assumptive and has too much AOL or analytical overlay and ego involved. Or this is too, you know, like you can only do cognitive remote viewing and do it with this method because that's the one that the military used. And, and, and it's like, but really the people involved that are actually doing it seem to uh, because the phenomenon of remote viewing seems to adapt all the time and change as they, the remote viewer gets into it, it seems like their methods and approach to it are constantly fluid and changing too. Like uh, you read stories about people starting out liking to be in a room with like hemi-sync music and using kind of like a particular approach and having a, almost like a ritual to warm up, uh, like to warm up to get ready and to Dejunk their own consciousness and the whole thing. And then you've got later on people like Joe McMonagall who say like, you should be able to do this upside down with your head in a mud puddle, breathing <laughs> through a straw. It shouldn't matter if you've got all these rituals. It's a real phenomenon. And once you get it down, you just have it and stuff. So, <laughs> so interesting. So what is kind of your approach, Mark? And maybe you can share some of what you've done with us here. Well, like I said, I'll, I'll, um, I'll put the headphones on. I'll do a, a meditation for about 10 minutes or so. Try to clear my mind and um, and have uh, everything kind of set up for me in front of me. So I'll have my paper um, and uh, a quiet room that I can work in, you know, uh, mute the phone. Don't uh, don't get distracted by anything. Um, and then, um, and like I said, just try to pay attention to your mind. And, um, and let, you, you can't chase the data. You let that, that data sort of come to you. That's the other thing. If you're chasing it, you're doing it wrong. Uh, it, if you're quiet enough and you're open to it, uh, those impressions will, uh, will show up. And as far as like, um, the methods that you, you talked about, I mean, there, there are debate, uh, there is debate over, uh, like the various ways of doing remote viewing. I kind of like Joe McMonagall's definition where it's uh, it's only really remote viewing if everyone involved in it is double blind. So no one no one knows what the target is. Anybody in the room has no idea what the target is. And uh, you can you know, you can reproduce that in the lab very easily. Um, so uh, he, he looks for that lab level kind of uh, standard. Um, usually the people outside of a lab. Um, they're going to have some idea about um, at least somebody's going to have some idea about what the target is. But as the viewer, you don't necessarily um, you don't want that kind of information. That's you mentioned AOL before. I don't know how many of your viewers understand what AOL is. That is called uh, analytical overlay, which is a term that Ingo Swan coined, I believe, that really um, it addresses those kind of things that pop into your head that that in in a in a more structured version of remote viewing like CRV. Um, that's data that you get that is out of structure, something that shows up that you're not supposed to be looking for at that particular time. So you generally write that down on the side of your paper 
just so you can clear your mind, say, okay, I recognize that. It's very much like meditation, you know, where you're, where you're thinking, you're, you're trying to quiet your mind and you have a thought that sort of pops into your head and you're supposed to acknowledge it, say, I, I hear this, I put it aside and go back to, you know, focusing on my breath. And AOL is kind of like that thing that just sort of intrudes where it shouldn't. And you write it down, you clear your mind and you, um, you keep going again. So um, mm. that's, that's kind of what that is all about. So when you so when you when you start with a session, because you're blind, you don't have any preconceptions about what it is you're going to be viewing, and that's really the only way that you can progress. Um, there are a couple of things called, in certain cases, uh, you can get a little bit of information about it uh, just to really speed things along, and that's only really if you're a more advanced viewer. Like for instance, if you've been hired uh, in an operational setting to go find a missing person. Uh, your tasker might say, okay, this is a person, tell me about this person. And that would be, that's called front loading, where you get a little bit of idea where to focus. Mm -hmm. So that you have to be very careful with that, because if you give away too many hints, then you can really kick that viewer's imagination into full gear. And then you, you can't trust, you know, whatever it is that they come out with. So it's almost like the subconscious mind says, Oh, that reminds me of this. And then the story gets hijacked kind of like, a, yeah, that's called yeah. Uh, what castle building, I think is what the, the, the army uh, viewers called it, where you, you come up with one thing and then you keep piling on other things to sort of build that out. And uh, you wind up getting completely off tracks so that, you know, that happens sometimes. There's also, it's almost this phenomenon. I use a lot of metaphors. It's almost like the, if you open up the aperture of the consciousness, you know, and it's just like this pure white light because you normally have this whole radio playing or dialogue going on that is your own conscious mind. So let's say you quiet that and you open mm -hmm. up the aperture to this pure kind of openness. And then suddenly these images sort of begin to uh, enter into the lens or into frame where you begin to witness or experience or sense things that are almost like a visualization or imagination, but it feels outside of what you would do. And the problem is, is a lot of times our mind wants to grab a hold of a little aspect of those images and grab onto them and microanalyze them or overanalyze them. And that's when that analytical overlay comes in and you start saying, I've got this and I think I know what this is or who this person is. And you want to name it. And give it a label when really and that'll, you just, that'll kill you every time in a yeah <laughs> okay so you just have to keep that aperture wide open and just continue to witness the the images and the scenes and the impressions and everything as they flow through i'm actually really learning a lot that's why i'm yeah. repeating a lot of this that self-awareness is a big deal hearing you describe it is a uh, is really cool so yeah so you're able to peel through that and kind of be that open aperture and and then images come in, you try not to cling on to anything too tight. And you, meanwhile, you're kind of super positioned and you're still there in the room and you're drawing kind of free writing on the paper, these impressions that are coming through. So, yeah. So the, um, the, the key to, to doing good remote viewing is to curb your habit of trying to, uh, to name things. So the remote viewer's job is to describe describe those impressions that come in, um, write them down. So just the impression, uh, don't try to assemble them, right? Um, because mm -hmm. 
when you when you try to name something, then the uh, the imagination kicks in, and then you wind up, like I said, castle building and coming up with something that uh, has no you know relevance to the particular target. So it's a constant battle of uh, just describe. Don't don't analyze. Don't name. Uh, and if you can learn how to only, you know, go with the uh, uh, descriptions and, and maybe sketches and avoid as much as you can your tendency to try to want to name something, then, uh, then you will be a great remote viewer. And that is a constant battle because often you'll get data that suggests something and you think that uh, you're, you're on target or whatever. Um, and then you wind up trying to uh, describe something that your mind has named that, you know, is completely off target. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it, in order to do really good remote viewing, you train yourself not to name. And, uh, you know, that can be difficult, but uh, with practice, uh, it comes and then you get, uh, get better sessions as a result. Really, it's the same with meditation, I found as well. I practice oh. it even in the grocery store when I'm walking around. The, you see all the labels and all the items on the shelf and everything trying to market to you and the prices. And it's a real mental exercise to be able to walk around and free your mind from this slavery of reading everything. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you get so hung up. You walk down the aisle at the grocery store and you're like, Oh, no, 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 no. And there's this whole dialogue. You cannot stop reading all the freaking labels, you know? And then even when you're not looking and being fed information, your mind wants to feed itself with these old tapes that it replays or music and, and these distractions and stuff. And, and really uh, what you're saying is with remote viewing and that when we try to understand the true nature of consciousness and reality is that uh, beyond just that constant dialogue going on in the head, there is this source information that is timeless, that contains everything that has ever happened and that everything that is happening now is accessible to an individual that, that practices this. And so having that intention and that focus and everything is a, is a critical part. It's super interesting. Mark, can you show us a little bit of what you've done or maybe a session? Yeah, let, me, uh, let me flip over here. I've got OBS set up and uh, there's a page. And if any of you guys that are watching have questions in the comments uh, section, I'm popping them up on screen. I know we've got one that came in earlier about uh, remote viewing non-human intelligences. And we're going to be talking about that here in a little bit about uh, remote viewing entities that seem to notice that you're remote viewing them even in the past and different things. And then they seem to come into your present life. <laughs> in a paranormal fashion. So maybe we'll talk about some of those things and your thoughts about that too. But okay, so Mark, I'm going to pull you up. Let's see if I can make you more. How do I make you go full screen? <laughs> I don't know how to do this. See if I click it again. I'm going to try to make this page a little bit bigger here too. Yeah. Yeah. But this is a session that I did um, with uh, Angela Thompson Smith's class, and uh, it was um, I think it was my first target I worked. Yeah, there, make it a little bit bigger here. It was the first target I worked, and she was my monitor. And during training, uh, she she gives feedback uh, to let me know if I'm on signal line or not, and that's that's fair for training. Normally, you wouldn't do that during a uh, an operational particular session. So let me just quickly describe a little bit about what you see here, the format of this page. 
first off, you write down um, your name, date, and stuff here. This is this is like the uh, the controlled remote viewing method (CRV). If you have any um, uh, aesthetic impact things, anything that's on your mind that might distract you, you write that down here. If you have any um, personal inclemencies, that sort of thing, you write that down. And there's the target that I uh, was assigned. So she sat me down at a table. She said, uh, your target is YZW589. And then I wrote that down. Actually, it was YCW, I guess. I guess I apparently uh, got that wrong, um, misinterpreted her, but it's YCW589. Then I drew what's called an ideogram, which is supposed to be like a um, a spontaneous uh, movement of the pen. And this is something I'm still working on, actually. But um, it generally is uh, supposed to be um, looking somewhat similar to the target that you're working, okay? So uh, it should roughly be the same shape of whatever it is, whatever it is you're doing. So then you kind of describe the movement you felt when you were drawing the ideogram. And so what, that's what I did here. And I said, um, I, I picked up that it's land, man-made, and water. Okay. Uh, and over here in the column, remember we mentioned analytical overlays. I was writing down a few of those here too. So uh, these other things that would pop into my head, I would write down uh, on the side of the page. And, and the way I, I tell people personally how I consider this, um, when you get these AOLs, uh, it's not that they're necessarily wrong information. It could be that these images or thoughts that you have are telling you something uh, that's important about the target. So you write them down on the side of your page like this, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong. And sometimes you can find some hints here in your AOLs that might actually uh, help you out. But in a CRV session, um, sometimes these uh, these thoughts come in way too early in the process. And so they have to be considered out of structure. So if you're getting really strong visuals right from the start in a remote viewing session, you're doing CRV, then chances are it's AOL. Chances are it is something that does not matter. So um, so you can kind of more or less just, I wrote it down. I kind of put it aside. I kept going. Then you go, I went to my stage two and I'm starting to pick up some impressions. Now, the thing that a lot of people who are new to remote viewing don't realize, it is not just vision. It's not just images that you are getting. Uh, it encompasses all of your senses so you don't just necessarily see things you can hear things you can taste things um you can uh sometimes feel the emotions in more advanced uh, targets if you're if you're looking at a scene or a person um you can get what's called aesthetic impact so that's the feeling of the target uh affecting you so for instance if you were standing on the top of the eiffel tower uh aesthetic impact might be wow this is expansive and i feel tall and and, and that is, is legitimate uh, data. So you would write that down as an AI. And, and, and when you're working a target, uh, eventually you will get enough data and that aperture that you were mentioning will open up enough that you will start to, to get feelings from that target. And, uh, and that's, that's when you know you're really starting to zero in on the target. So uh, in this case, I was doing my stage two. I had salty, bright, wide open, warm, windy, tall, and then uh, laughter, all right? might be considered a little out of structure in this case, but I, I it's hmm. something I heard, right? Laughter. So I wrote that down. And then I, I started to get the sense of an oval. Uh, and I drew this kind of shape that looks like an airfoil or something almost. Um, I started writing down ocean site for AOL, uh, bridge or Chesapeake Bridge, um, ship, ship's deck or something. 
And I think in this case, I was trying, my mind was trying to name this and, um, hmm. and that can be a little bit uh, challenging. So, so uh, one, one second, really quick, yeah. Mark, if you go back on that page, I mean, yeah. your, your ideogram, that's kind of like a Rorschach, right? I mean, it's just the most basic intuitive, just squiggle, but right off the bat, when you did it the second time, it almost already looks like a mountain range and like a lake or like, yeah, it looks like there's <laughs> water here. Right. And yeah. It, it almost kind of begins to look like a Bob Ross elements. Like you've got that the mountain might be range. the best ideogram I've ever done, to be honest. <laughs> <That's great laughs> Usually they're just squiggles and they have no, um, yeah. So it, I'm still working on the ideograms. Yeah. Um, and so again, just like keeping the dream journal, the fact that there's kind of a methodology to this, so to where you have the, the way to begin, the way to settle into it, mm -hmm. how to categorize and toss your AOL off to the side columns and sort of right off the bat, as you start to use a method or work with people that have been doing this, it, it helps you organize that mental picture and thought processes. Like you said, some of it gets so like synesthesia, like I will smell something, you know, like I'll smell smoke. And I'll be like, oh, is there, and, and it could be anything, like, is there like a fire? Am I sensing all the forest fires going on? And then suddenly it's just this, like a familial presence. It's like, oh, it's dad, you know, or there's this, I, but that's comes from meditation. And, but you're saying it's the same in remote viewing a lot. You'll have uh, sensations or smells or. Um, yes, you will, you will get, it's not just vision. You'll get uh, feelings and uh, you'll hear things, you'll smell things, uh, touch things, taste things. Any of your physical senses could be represented here. And um, and that data comes into your head. It's like it's bypassing the, uh, the actual, you know, neurons that lead from your um, your physical senses and just going directly into the brain. So uh, and it's 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 really cool when it happens. Um, hmm. So so when you do a session, don't just focus on the visuals or. Um, you know how things look necessarily, but go after everything like, for instance, our our target here in the bag right mm -hmm. i want you to think about the other senses that might be represented here and see if that helps you um tune in okay yeah <laughs> that was the first impression that i got was actually a color and a smell when you lifted up the bag okay which is funny right. yeah right. and it kind of a, like a sensation or sh of a shape all but right we'll see write, write that down or something so that we've got a record <laughs> okay <laughs> so i just want to show you this really quick i'll go through the rest of this very quickly so um I got an emotional impression of leisurely. I kept seeing this shape, this really um, crazy shape that looked like an airfoil or something. And I sensed movement and jumping. And then I kind of drew a picture that looked like the, the deck of a ship or something or a submarine. There was something about that. I thought, what's going on here? Um, it feels like there's water involved. It's flowing. I see layers. Um, and then um, I was drawing shapes with the water. And then I kept looking at that. And something clicked in my head and I said, you know what? That's a surfboard. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a surfboard. And then Angela said that I'd named it, right? She said, okay, all right, that's the end of the session. So um, I did a quick stage four that talks a little bit about, about that. Um, I got the impression of there was a lot of fun happening. It was exciting, energizing, playing, fast surface. So and, wait, that uh, was the target. It was this, it was surfing. Let me show you. Can you see that? It's not the best. Uh, what Nothing the heck, dude? This, this was a contest uh, held in California to see how many people could be on a surfboard at the same time. Wow. 
And I think the record was like 60 something people, 60 very brave people, I guess. <laughs> but that was my target. And it was uh, it was a contest. So uh, those impressions of uh, laughter and fun and, and all that came through. So uh, well, I, was, I mean, at the beginning of this, it could have been anything. It could have been yeah. like uh, it could have been like a treasure box in the desert out in Nevada. It could have been anything. I had no clue. And um, and Angela, of course, was giving me some feedback when I was talking about various things, uh, which was just what one does in training. But uh, that shape just kept popping in my head. And I said, how do I what is this? And then uh, then it just occurred to me. It's a surfboard. <laughs> and it turns out it was a very large surfboard. So. That is a huge surfboard. How many people are on there? Do you know? I think like over 60. And um, <laughs> if you if you look online on YouTube, I think there's a video that shows them doing that. Um, looks like it was a lot of fun. And I think they actually, I think they did get the world record for uh, that many people. So. <laughs> That's cool. So go back to the last page on your RV session. Yeah. And then the one before that. Yeah. So that's stage four and then stage do I have a stage? You drew the, you just the one you just set down. You drew it. I mean, like, look at that. There's a surfboard. Doesn't that look like a surfboard? It's like your overhead looking down on it from the side. So you notice how it's not not directly like the yeah. point of view of the photographer. You're seeing the scene three dimensionally, like you're flying out over it in creative mode. You know, it's not like you're you're just uh, seeing it from the perspective of the photographer on the target. You're seeing the actual scene right? like you're there. And sometimes that can be uh, superimposed from the side or overhead. Is that right. beneficial yeah, you, to change the point of view like that? What, what happens is that, um, yeah, I mean, you, you can see it from different angles. And in fact, uh, during some sessions, your monitor might give you a movement exercise that says, go 100 feet above this target and something should be visible. Hmm. And then that can kind of cue your mind into, you know, imagining or whatever that you were above the target. And sometimes, yeah, you'll get a completely different point of view. Uh, and a lot of that depends on uh, the particular target. If you're doing like the Eiffel Tower, for instance, and you said go 100 feet above it, you would see, you know, like the expanse of the, of the, the grass around it or whatever, and maybe some of the city. So, I mean, it's helpful to do that. And um, if you look at... Uh, some of the sketches that you might do in a session, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to correspond with what's actually on the ground because of that fact that you could be looking at it from any particular angle, whatever, whatever angle makes sense to you. So um, in this case, that's how it went. So That's so fascinating, Mark. <laughs> I love stuff like this. It blows my mind because the implications of it are, are incredible. Not only the implications or what it means about us as humans and our human potential, what it means about the actual nature of reality and kind of what we've been taught or told that is uh, meant to kind of keep us in a particular box or to control our potential maybe. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of different angles that to talk about this and to approach it, but it's amazing that now with the internet and with shows like this and conversations like this, we're able to meet and discuss this and kind of tie a thread through all of it. And the implications get even deeper when you start to remote remote view some of the dark secrets and the weird mysteries of reality and what might be going on with maybe UFOs or the paranormal or some of these incidents throughout mm -hmm. history. So what are some of your more favorite uh, kind of psychic experiences or remote viewing targets that uh, you think are credible or interesting and worth talking about? Well, um, I haven't done a lot of these um, mystery types of targets, being that I'm a bit um, 
early, I guess, in the training. There, there's uh, several layers of training uh, to be done that um, really open up to some interesting things. But I've heard and read of some very interesting uh, targets. Uh, for instance, um, a book that uh, I would recommend if you're interested in, in learning about stuff. This is Joe McMonagall's book, Mind Track. Hmm. And uh, chapter 16 of Mind Track talks about this session that Joe did at the Moreau Institute um, where he was tasked with the, um, the Cydonia region of Mars. And so yeah. uh, this was recorded and he, Joe likes to do what we call extended remote viewing, which is uh, basically getting as relaxed as possible, just right down to the edge of sleep almost. And then um, sharing his impressions. So uh, this whole chapter talks about these uh, alien races that, uh, used to live on Mars and uh, how some of them are, are waiting around for somebody to come back and rescue them or, or something like that. And uh, there are massive pyramids there on the uh, surface of Mars that uh, just dwarf the ones that we have in Egypt, for instance. Uh, and a lot of this very, very interesting stuff. Uh, so I had tweeted a little bit about that uh, recently, just sort of uh, dropping some hints like Tom McNair um, also did some remote viewing of Mars and he was the keynote speaker at the International Remote Viewing Association meeting last week. And uh, he was uh, reviewing the data from, I think, 17 or 19 remote viewers who were also tasked with Mars. And uh, every single one of them found things there that, uh, that one wouldn't necessarily expect to find on a, a barren, desolate planet. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's super weird. And there's uh, weird stuff like even the car, the cartoonist that worked for Mar, uh, was it Marvel or DC? Jack, uh, Jack Kirby, he wrote a comic book about the face on Mars and the pyramids on Mars oh. before NASA or the government ever even supposedly sent any probes to Mars or revealed any of that. And the face that he even drew in the comic books looks just like the pictures of that strange monolithic face on Mars, that rock feature that's been remote viewed, that's mm -hmm. supposedly some ancient prehistoric civilization site and things. And so it's really fascinating when you find out Jack Kirby was also working with the CIA back then. So what the heck was going on? You know, mm. <laughs> it's like all tied into the comic book industry and Hollywood and the CIA and remote viewing Mars. But yeah, even the moon, if people remote viewing the moon, or different uh, UFO sites and things. I know, was it Pat Price that supposedly looked at uh, different extraterrestrial sites? Or yes, Pat Price was one of the first ones, I think, to do that at SRI. Um, and it was just something he wasn't tasked with. He just came up with it. But I think he, I think the story goes that he came in and dropped these uh, the session data on. I think it was Hal Putoff's desk and said, "Look what I found. You know, I've, I've located these four alien bases on on Earth." And uh, and that was kind of the start, I think, of people remote viewing these alien bases. But uh, as that had been tasked further on, um, other remote viewers were getting the exact same data. So, um, you know, people question whether or not there might be aliens in a mountain in the Mojave Desert. And my answer is, well, why not? Since they seem to be in many other places around Earth. So. Yeah, you never know if they're in some kind of a, uh, an ability to hide in our blind spot in reality or perceptual awareness. That's mm -hmm. the thing is you when you realize these things, even like the phenomenon of remote viewing in human consciousness, you uh, one of the most uh, first realizations is how limited 
you didn't realize you were before how blind you really yeah. didn't know that you were before like yeah. you've got a pair of blinders on or goggles on and suddenly you realize wow there's way more to this and we're just scratching the surface some of these guys are like uh, paul smith and and daz smith and joe mcmonagall and ingo swan they're really like pioneers and adventurers on the forefront of this trying to understand it maybe carl young and and these ancient oracles, but always in the past, I think got treated like a shaman or a witch or some sort of a, a paranormal thing. But now it's getting utilized. It's been used by the government. Uh, it's being treated very serious. And, and now there's people involved in meditation that are having phenomenal encounters and experiences. So like, have, have you had any so far where you've been like remote viewing or meditating and felt like you've had something notice you or like another entity or awareness that you would call other dimensional or spiritual or extraterrestrial in that sense? You know, it's kind of funny. Um, in the, in the, uh, in the two separate week long trainings I've done for remote viewing, um, I have had the impression that there have been others hanging around and I think they were interested in what I was doing. Hmm. Um, not so much the individual targets because we weren't tasked with um, doing ETs or anything like that. But there was there was some crazy energy around both times. Both times I went through uh, week long trainings with Angela and, and with Paul Smith. So not surprisingly, like energies isn't like you. Did you feel like uh, like your awareness was just more opened up to these other dimensions, or do you feel like it kind of like I use this analogy like chumming for sharks? Suddenly you're putting a signal out there that suddenly puts you on the radar to be paid attention to? Well, um, I, I think I've had experiences all my life, um, which I haven't gotten into, but, um, but I think that uh, they, I think they're actually, they're happy that I'm, I'm exploring remote viewing. I honestly get that impression that mm. uh, this is something they want to see more people do. And uh so they were, I think they were closely watching how things were going and uh, they were making their, their, uh, their presence known in certain cases. So, yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think they want to see more people become more open psychically and, and use these mental abilities that we all have, because uh, I think that, um, like you said, I mean, it's like taking the blinders off it, it, these, the way we think about, who we are and how we interact with people is so limited. And mm -hmm. if you uh, play more with, uh, with the, uh, your psychic skills and abilities and, and open your mind up more to um, bigger possibilities, I think that uh, you find that uh, it's a far more interesting world than, than you first expected. So. Yeah. I think people are terrified of it. I know when I mentioned to people that I'm interested in this kind of stuff, like, uh, mystical research and meditation or astral projection. The Monroe Institute does out-of-body stuff. I've done all that gateway meditation okay. stuff, and it's really cool. I like a lot of it. Uh, but people get terrified that somehow they're going to get, uh, they're going to attract a demon, or there's going to be a poltergeist suddenly in their bedroom at night, banging around in their closet, or they're going to start having these crazy nightmares. And, you know, I got to be honest, some of it at a certain level is a little bit scary and i can't say that some of that at a certain level hasn't happened to me uh uh but also working through a lot of that those experiences those always in the end ended up being positive when i've uh the only advice i can give and people can take this for what it's worth 
that have these types of encounters or interactions is to approach it like a distraught family member. Even if there's some uh, an entity or some sort of shadow being or in a meditation, you feel like something's really confront confronting you. Whenever I've approached it with a heart of compassion, like even if this was like my cousin who was going through an addiction withdrawal or really struggling with their mental health, uh, you don't even know what you would look like if you could see your own subconscious outside yourself approaching you. So don't have too much prejudice, uh, but also make sure that you're being mindful and know, kind of know what you're doing and uh, stick with your intention as well. So intention anything very important. And yeah. mindset. you know, if you are expecting something good to happen, then it will most likely happen. And the opposite is true, I think. So, yeah. So, uh, so what, what has happened to you, Mark? Is anything interesting or fascinating that might be relatable for people? Well, um, remote viewing has opened me up to, um, really pay more attention to my, my psychic, uh, intuition. And, um, let me just mention one thing I was thinking of. Um, about five years ago, um, I was, um, I was at my desk and decided to go out and grab some lunch. Uh, I was working at a IT company, I think, and, and went out and, um, got my lunch, came back and decided, well, I need to go to the ATM to get some money. So, uh, hopped in the car and drove over to the closest ATM and I'm in the parking lot waiting my turn to get to the ATM. And all of a sudden I noticed that uh, I'm having these crazy thoughts about like, well, if, if I was driving a getaway car, which way would I go? Is there an exit over there that I could do? Or how would I, how would I get in and out of here as quickly as I, as I could? And uh, I thought, that's crazy. Why, why in the world am I thinking about these thoughts? I mean, there was nobody around. It was uh, midday, you know, uh, sunny day. And I was just waiting my turn to go use the ATM. But I had these crazy thoughts about uh, like a getaway car, you know, and it didn't make any sense. So um, I found up, I finally wound up getting the money I needed out of the ATM, went back to my desk, and then I was checking the local news site maybe an hour or two later. And they were saying that that branch had been robbed. Hmm. And it was five minutes after I had been there. And you're almost like connected or empathing in these guys who had robbed the bank possibly some sort of like an escape route like. somehow somehow i picked up on it and um and i thought about it later that, like that was that was just bizarre like why in the world would i be thinking these things and then it was literally five minutes later that they walked into that branch and uh, assaulted a teller and wound up getting money and and somehow i don't know i can't explain it but i knew that wow. something weird was going to happen there and uh and that I think just comes from learning how to um, to trust my my psychic intuition, and I think remote viewing helped with that. And if you if you practice this on a regular basis, yeah, I mean, it, it, you start off thinking that what am I opening myself up to? But at the same time, you know, I think that something inside me was telling me that it was telling me you should be aware of this. Something something is going to go down, right? Yeah. And it was communicating with to me the way the only way it knew how, right? So was I necessarily picking up the thoughts of these uh, robbers? I I didn't go back and, and find out if they'd actually taken the route, you know, into the parking lot that I was trying to suggest. But um, but it was telling me that something bad is about to happen. And I think that uh, you know, I mean, given a choice, uh, I like knowing when things that are bad are about to happen because then I can you know decide how I'm going to react to them. And, uh, 
And so I think overall it's, it's a positive, right? You, you want to, uh, I'd much rather have that information than not have that information. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. What are, what are your thoughts, Mark on, are you familiar with the uh, CE five, like the Stephen Greer's protocol of remote viewing or remote reverse remote viewing? And I'll just say as a caveat, because I don't, I don't, I've tried it and I've downloaded it and gone through it and stuff. And funny enough, way before he came out with his stuff, uh, I kind of was doing a similar thing and had weird experiences and saw stuff, but I wanted to know what your thoughts were. I'm not necessarily a believer or proponent of it, but uh, well, I'm I, I am an experiencer. I've had experiences before, and uh, and so I don't know if there's something that I can do that others necessarily can or can't. I don't know how it how it reacts to people who who haven't had experiences. Really, uh, really quick, point. maybe I'll just yeah. explain to everybody who doesn't know yeah. what CE5 is. It's this concept that you can sit down and use a form of meditation that's that gets referred to like remote viewing, uh, where you basically project your location, almost like Google Earth, out into the cosmos like a, a signal, like a radio signal into the cosmos, into the universe in order uh to send out a signal, assuming that there's entities or beings out there either evolved enough uh, to have the ability to detect that signal and know exactly where you're at and come say hello, or they have the technology to pick up that signal. And if you do a good enough job with your intention, remote viewing or uh, pointing out exactly in the universe and the solar system and on the planet, right where you're at, uh, uh, with a group of people, then something will show up in the sky or things will begin to manifest to you. So that's kind of the idea. And there's a whole app you can download and all that stuff. So anyway, back to what your thoughts are, Mark, now that everybody knows what the heck that is. What do you, no, thank, what yeah, do you think? Thank about? you for explaining that. Um, I I don't know. I don't necessarily uh, subscribe to everything that Stephen Greer does. Uh, I've seen some questionable videos out there. I know a lot of people have. Um, I think that there are some things that he, he's done that has have been worthwhile. Uh, as far as CE5 goes, um, I've kind of got a mixed opinion about it. Um, there, there, there's a lot of life out there in the universe. Um, I mean, if you think about uh, the statistics, you know, just I think we've already determined that for every star that you can see in the sky and every star that actually is in the sky, there's at least one planet. Um, so... I personally believe that the universe is teeming with life. And I think the, the statistics bear that out. Uh, we don't know a ton about all that different life, right? We don't know about these other races. We know that there are, or at least some of us know that uh, we are being visited here, right? I mean, who do you think is driving those Tic Tacs, right? Um, I think that uh, you got to be very careful about who you invite into your front door. Uh, mm -hmm. So, um if you are just blindly doing C5, uh, I don't know what the, all the protocols are necessarily, but I think your intention, once again, is very important about that, that you want to have um, benevolent beings show up. If um, if you're out calling, you know, um, to, to whoever might answer. Um, I think in general, like the ones that I have interacted with have been fairly friendly, um, uh, but uh, there are, Quite a few reports out there of some beings that are not friendly and um and there have been some remote viewing sessions i guess that help bear that out and i think i also dropped a hint about that too uh in twitter so uh like if somebody was just walking down the street in front of your house and um 
it was dark. You couldn't see their face. Would you necessarily invite them in and yeah. have a beer with them? You know? Yeah. And same if you're in a busy city and you go out to the street corner and put yourself out there to have anybody come up and give you free hugs. Usually <laughs> the first people to come running up there are not the safest. A lot of times they're really mentally distraught or drug addicts or homeless people, you know? And so how do we know that that's not the same out in the cosmos where right. something very needy <laughs> or distraught shows up first and you're just beginning and untrained and unfamiliar with this kind of stuff. Right. Uh, and they're just evolutionarily or technologically uh, way beyond what you can fathom to be able to deal with that. So Right. So it's just like in remote viewing. Uh, tasking is important. Intention is important. If you want to invite friendly beings to come say hello, you might have some luck with that. Um, I would I would try to focus more on that than just like have anybody come through. Um, you know, I, I don't use Ouija boards for that reason because uh, you never know what you're going to get with that. But um, but yeah, just do it. Do it very mindfully, as you said. Uh, it's not just a matter of something showing up, but you want something showing up that is uh, it's going to have a positive experience for you. You know. Yeah. Do you mind sharing any of your experiences with that, or do you uh, want to save that for some other okay. time? Okay, uh, I will mention this. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I had uh, gotten excited again about uh, UFO Twitter. You know, I saw I love all those conversations that take place there, and so I went out on my back porch. And just uh, thought in my mind, okay, you know, if anything is out there and hanging out and listen to me, you know, give me a sign or whatever. So uh, sat quietly in my chair, looked in various portions of the sky, and then uh, there was one spot that I started to focus on. And then all of a sudden, I got a flash in that particular spot of the sky, like a flash bulb, mm. just popping like that, and then going away. And it was right where I was looking. And I think it was the answer to my question. So uh, left me smiling the rest of the night and uh, knowing that, uh, you know, they're, they're still hanging around. So. I, have the, I have the same thing happen all the time, oh. Mark. So oh. just so you don't feel strange about that. I, that's what I was talking about. Like, I don't understand, you know, I understand the CE5 protocol, but there is uh, something to that. I've seen, mm -hmm. you know, I look up, I get this feeling like, hello, or some kind of like a response almost like, I'll be meditating with my eyes closed, very altered state of consciousness, kind of like mm -hmm. drip, you know, setting my sails very carefully right where I'm at, sort of with my aperture open. Mm -hmm. And then I'll sort of put it out there, like to see if there's anything paying attention uh, or if I sense anything. And sometimes just like the brown paper bag, I'll get sort of almost like an image of, yeah, like a craft or something, even with beings on it or visualization of, something trying to respond and sometimes i look up and don't see anything and other times i'll see what looks like a star or satellite that will turn or change directions and sometimes it's like a like a poom like a flash bulb mm -hmm. uh, up in the sky um and it's very strange <laughs> but i have not had anything like come down and land i haven't been uh taken as far as i know i uh what are you what are your thoughts about that like the abduction people or hypnosis and recounting. I, I am one of those abduction people. Um, I had that happen to me. Um, this okay. was, uh, this was after a series of months where I was seeing lights in the sky and, uh, it, it started off in September 28th, 2013. It was the first day of the, uh, the city of Raleigh's international bluegrass festival. We were sitting in, in Red Hat Amphitheater in downtown Raleigh, uh, at the top of the hill, 
uh, waiting for uh, Steve Martin and the Steep Canyon Rangers to play. They were the headlining uh, band. And uh, my wife uh, looks over at the, um, at, the, at the horizon right next to the um, amphitheater stage and uh, points at these lights that are just kind of bobbing around right over the uh, tops of the buildings. And there's, there's probably a dozen of them and they look like flares or Chinese lanterns or something like that. And um, I was probably too loud for her to actually tell, uh, talk much, but I looked at that and I was like, you know what? Those aren't airplanes. <laughs> Those aren't airplanes. Those are, um, there's something, but they're not airplanes. And, um, and so um, we enjoyed the show, we got home, uh, they had fireworks at the end of the night. And, uh, and so the next morning I, I called up the city's uh, dispatcher and I said, did you get any other reports about strange lights in the city? And, and they checked the records. They said, no, uh, I called up the fire department to see if they had launched flares just to get, I guess, a gauge of the, the winds before they did the, the uh, fireworks. And they said, no, we don't, we don't normally launch flares. And uh, so I was completely um, baffled about what it was I saw. So, um, and the funny thing is, uh, those types of lights, those amber orbs, um, tend to fly over every now and then. I'll see somebody else catch video of them, like a friend of mine did in the neighboring city of Durham just last, last month. Mm. Uh, he was out about nine o'clock and saw these amber lights um, flying by, and, uh, and he shared them on Twitter. And I said, yeah, I, that's exactly what it was I saw, so... Do you think they're actual craft? Do you think they're like UFOs or actual ships? Because the military seems convinced, the government seems to be portraying that these are craft, but everything that I, I have not seen a metallic craft, the only thing I've ever seen has been like a, a welding light or like a boom, like a ball of light or orb oh. uh, type of thing. And then just weird, you know, bumps in the dark kind of shadow figure stuff. But uh, I wonder, I don't know, have you seen any kind of like physical craft, metallic craft. I'm not saying that there isn't. I'm just really curious. Like yeah. Okay. Let me, let me talk about this. And, um, and you mentioned Ego Swan before. Um, let me first start off by, by telling you a little bit about a book Ingo Swan wrote uh, called Penetration. Have you heard yeah. about the book Penetration? I've read it. I love that book where he goes to, is it Alaska? Or he... he goes to Alaska and he watches this UFO rise up out of the lake. But uh, the crazy thing is he's, he's tasked by some shadowy government agency to remote view the moon. Yeah. And he expects to get your typical craters and maybe some, you know, dead spacecraft or whatever. And all of a sudden he's picking up these, uh, these human like people on the moon and it blows him away. He's like, this is, and I read this book, um, back in, um, 2006. Uh, it wasn't, it was out of print long out of print by then. So I found a bootleg copy and I'm reading, I'm going, all right, Ingo Swan is, is pulling my leg here. There's no way any of this happened. And to be honest, you know, a lot of people talk about Lou Elizondo's book deal. More power to him. I'm perfectly happy with that. But some producer out there needs to buy the rights to penetration and turn that into a movie. That oh, would be the so, most awesome movie. It's like so good, Mark. Yeah, I mean, there's even moments there where he's like at the cafe and runs into what might not be a human, but some yeah. sort of like, like an either an extraterrestrial or some sort of a cyborg AI entity that looks like yes. this beautiful woman that tries to flirt with him. Yes. And they get upset yeah. with him because they say she's dangerous. Yeah. These so, special forces guys come and snatch him out of there and they're like, stay away from her. She's that deadly. Is, it is the craziest tale. And, uh, yeah. and it would make an awesome movie and somebody out there should probably do it. But the reason I mentioned this book is that, um, 
it was involved in one of my UFO sightings. Oh, really? I was reading this book. Uh, it was the day after Christmas, 2013, I think it was. Um, beautiful day here in Raleigh, probably 60 degrees. It was sunny, uh, very breezy. And, uh, and I was reading Penetration and because I found a copy. And about 3 o'clock, I put the copy of the book down. And I go outside to refill my bird feeder, which is, um, it was hanging um, up next to my windowsill. And it was, it was up quite a bit, but it was empty. And so I, I, I got outside. Um, I'm out there trying to get my bird feeder down. I'm using this pole to try to unhook it. And as I'm sort of looking up in the sky, right where the bird feeder is, I see some crazy dark shape right behind it. Hmm. And so I'm like, eh, yeah, I don't know what that is. I'm going back. I'm, I'm unhooking the bird feeder. And then I realized, well, um, that's not a plane. It doesn't have wings. <laughs> and, and I look at it and um, I was living um, where a lot of these uh, turkey buzzards would normally do their um, circular uh, updraft flying and stuff, kind of, you know, um, gliding around. So I'm looking at that going, OK, is it is it a turkey buzzard? Is it a helicopter? Is it a plane? And it, it looks it's uh, it's coming closer and it, it's a very it's a round ball with these uh, grayish spikes on it, um, which which kind of reminded me of a, a flying leaf or a squirrel from how I saw it. Just because like a flying squirrel, you know, how, how they've got all their limbs out and they kind of have all these points uh, or like a puffer fish, you know, something that. Um, yeah, that, that kind of thing. And it was gray and it was completely silent and it was kind of moving very slowly, almost directly over my house. And so by the time I got through my list of things that I knew that it wasn't, uh, I realized, oh my gosh, my camera is just right inside the door, 20 feet away. And I took a step over toward the door to grab the camera. And then by the time I, I then I realized, you know, by the time I get that camera, this thing is going to be gone. Yeah. And so uh, I let it just kind of drift into the um, beyond the trees and stuff and couldn't see it anymore. But this was in the middle of the day, broad daylight, this crazy thing that um, was not a plane or a helicopter or a balloon or a bird or anything that I could identify. And it had flown right over my house while I was reading a book about UFOs. And it was positioned in the sky in the exact perfect place for me to see it. Yeah. The coincidences are so odd and you get the same thing in like the Nimitz tic-tac thing where it somehow knows the rendezvous point or the cap point before the, cap the point, right. Before the pilots are even. Yeah. Yeah. And you get that phenomenon over and over and over again. And this goes even into the ancient strange, like esoteric stuff. Like when I was studying this type of meditation that the Dalai Lama does called the Kala Chakra, I don't know if you're familiar with that, I'm not, no. but up in Tibet, you know, they'll have this whole thing where, and uh, sometimes over, you know, 300 people will come up and get initiated into the Kala Chakra initiation. And for days they'll do ritualistic chanting and bell ringing and, and meditation, deep levels of, you know, group meditation all around this platform that is a representation of basically the, the inner consciousness. So it's like a diagram, almost like the Mayan calendar, uh, this mandala that is like a pathway into the inner sanctum of this human soul. And, and it's so interesting because they, they draw it out of sand on this giant table uh, with different colors of sand, all the different pathways. And they're meditating all the way through this, you know, 
And then at the end, they just sweep it all up and dump it in the river like it's meaningless. But what's fascinating is every time the Dalai Lama does these meditations, there's like a huge uptick in UFO sightings that happens on all the websites, not just in Tibet and China, but around the world. It's like when the Dalai Lama conducts this within like three days afterwards, you can see, boom, there's like this uptick in UFO sightings around the world. Uh, and it makes you wonder because what is it about human perception or consciousness that seems to attract the phenomenon? And not only as craft, but uh, Mark, do you think that this stuff comes down on the ground and accounts for like spirits and ghosts and poltergeists and things? And how does remote viewing connect with that? You know, it's a, uh... It is really interesting how um, a lot of uh, people who report uh, experiences, uh, contact, being abducted, what have you, um, also report poltergeist type activity. Uh, I don't honestly know how all that relates. You know, I've watched a couple of episodes of Skimwalker Ranch, for instance, and there's really interesting things going on there. Um, there, uh, It's like... Um, I was just there and saw a shadow figure along the fence line, by the way. And how'd that make you feel? <laughs> <laughs> uh, very nervous when I walked up and realized there was nothing actually there. I thought it was a cow, uh, and I walked up to it with a flashlight, like a black light flashlight, and I was filming. I walked up there, and then there was just like nothing there. And then I got that weird feeling of like something. Now it could be behind me, or wait a second, what if this is it? You know, and that realization really spooked me out. But uh, honestly, that whole experience going to Blind Frog Ranch and Skinwalker Ranch and sitting right there by the ranch by myself until late into the night and meditating and trying to interact. Uh, since I've come home, I've honestly had nothing but good stuff happen in my life. But good. Uh, I've done nothing but promote like that positive familial good. connection and like, do you need help or I'm here to for you to relate to kind of an attitude. And I've never had anything but good stuff happen. So. So the people I've I've uh, heard talk about visiting the ranch uh, seem to say that uh, your mindset is hugely important about, uh, you know, it, it really makes a difference on what kind of things you experience there. Uh, do you think that's kind of related to your experiences? Did you, you feel like? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's kind of just like if we're going to go back to like if you're going to put bait out in the water, you're going to attract whatever you're chumming for, whatever you're mm -hmm. trying to bait for. And, and so I think like. It's, there's some of that, but also if we go back to this concept of like the dreams, you know, if you're lucid dreaming, if you're in the middle of a dream and then suddenly you become aware, wow, I'm dreaming and you have that kind of phenomenal awareness in that moment. If you start to think about, boy, I hope a monster doesn't come around the corner. Then what do you think, you know, usually <laughs> happens? Exactly. You know, it manifests like the monster right. comes around or some and it usually it still scares you. And you're like, you know, even yeah. in the dream when you, you're the one thinking about it, your own anticipation, just like the Tic Tac sort of precognitively knows the cat point mm -hmm. in a weird way. And so I don't know if that's because our dreams are more interesting than we give them credit for or if the nature of reality is more dreamlike than we realize. And and that interface with our subconscious and the phenomenon comes into play. Uh, I don't know if it's because these the entities are malleable or sh incapable of really being. Uh, I don't know how do I say this. Let's say if the like you're doing the the initial Rorschach that intuitive drawing that be manifests into a remote viewing impression. Well, let's say something out of that 
counter space of the universe, this dark shadow realm or another dimension steps forward, it may not have an appearance in our reality that we can fathom. So it has to sort of energetically interface with our own expectations. I'm glad you said that. And our own uh, anticipations. And then we sort of see almost like you would see shapes in a cloud, what you're either terrified of or whatever it comes out almost like a plasma form and then you fill in the gaps, your subconscious interfaces, and then it pops into form. So I don't know. That's kind of my experience or impression with it because it seems to be malleable depending on how I'm responding. I, I Something you mentioned there uh, made me think about a, a little uh, theory I've been sort of kicking around and that is um, about Tic Tacs and, and UFOs and, and strange lights in the sky. Um, it's my opinion that we are looking at two realities that are um, interacting, right? right? They don't, they don't seem to be part of ours fully. We're not part of theirs. And so uh, I think that um, the reason they seem to have these amorphous shapes when you see these things in the sky is that we tend to have uh, an agreement about how things should look as humans, right? We all kind of have a, um, uh, collective idea about what the Eiffel Tower looks like, for instance, or what a car looks like or a plane or whatever, right? Most of us do. I mean, I'm sure there's yeah. indigenous uh, tribes in the Amazon that haven't been contacted that would not know what a helicopter is, right? I mean, we've seen that before. But, uh, you know, we all we all expect to see something. And we all have an idea about what something like a UFO would look like. And I think that uh, whoever's responsible for these craft um, have their own ideas too. And because we're not used to um, communicating, we don't have a collective sort of idea about what type of shape this thing should take place or, or take in our reality whenever they sort of dip in and out of re our reality. So it makes me think that uh, they're there and they aren't solid because we don't really have a common language that we're using for, between us and them. And that's why they uh, look so um, they don't really they don't really have a solid shape. Not all yeah. of them, anyway. Language is almost the problem because we want to identify everything with, you know, uh, nouns and pronouns and labels. You know, you see you see a bird fly past even when you're meditating, like initially as a beginner, a bird will fly by. And even if you're you feel like you're in that Zen state your conscious mind goes bird and oh look at that bird and has a whole dialogue in a in a human english language that was taught to you and put in there you know with abc's in preschool and by your parents as a kid that isn't actually innate to the true nature of consciousness which is that open aperture like a child you know mm -hmm. becoming that open awareness uh, to perceive and things and you know kids seem to see these things they have imaginary friends and have a different sort of out-of-body experiences. I, I tended to kind of wet the bed as a kid because I would forget to take my body with me. I would like go into the bathroom and use the toilet and then realize halfway in, I was like, wait, I'm not, I'm still laying in the bed. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then I'd go back to my body and realize in my bed and I'd wet the bed. The kind of thing. So I think kids naturally are more open to that. And then we pound in, these societal names and labels and identification onto things. And we do that with the phenomenon as well. We want to pound it into a, into a religious aspect or a science, a science fiction aspect, or we want to say, Oh, it's just a, a hallucination of the subconscious. 
and then we identify it, we've named it, and we know <laughs> it may not be any of those things. So we talked before about the Dalai Lama, we talked about CE5 and how uh, like poltergeist activity sometimes is associated with this kind of stuff. Um, I think what might be happening here is that you get a group of people who um, are learning to take the blinders off, yeah. right? And I think that group intention is at play. I think that, uh, I think I've actually seen some really crazy things happen uh, when a group of psychics are together, right? Um, if you've ever gone to um, the International Remote Viewing Conference, uh, often after all the main presentations take place, there'll be uh, like a spoon pinning party, for instance, and you'll get these people in the room. And I've seen this before. People will take this, uh, this silverware, hold it up in their hands right in front of me, and uh, it will fall over without them doing anything. And I've seen that happen. Just like uh, it melts in half, like Yuri Geller would do. It and... will fall over, yes, like a, like a spoon, yeah. like a solid spoon, just holding it just like this, not even putting any pressure on the spot where it falls over, but it'll just almost like turn to butter in front of you. And uh, you get a bunch of people in the room and you see that happening. Uh, if you've ever been to spoon bending party, it's a lot of fun. And uh, as soon as like the first person in the room bends a spoon, then it's like something clicks. It's like and contagious. Then, well, it's weird. You know, the way I describe it, we've, I've done this a couple of times, but it's like um, it's like the rules are somehow suspended all of a sudden. And uh, and I've been told when I was first learning how to spoon bend, it, it's like uh, you will, the spoon will tell you when it's ready to be bent. And I didn't yeah. really understand that at first, but there's yeah. when it's ready to bend, there's a shift in your consciousness and yeah. you feel the whole room change. And then all of a sudden, this solid piece of metal that's in your hand will become limp. And it, it happens. Yeah, Daz Smith has talked about that before, almost like just almost the phenomenon of remote viewing itself seems to almost be alive or have a consciousness to us, to it. Like uh, the, the manifest reality or what we consider physical reality is some sort of an etheric field that has a consciousness. Mm -hmm. You know, and you almost wonder if like, like Carl Jung in the, I, I actually have the red book. I don't know if you've read that. It's crazy, no. but I mean, it's literally his conversations with his own subconscious as if they are entities outside of himself in different phenomenal, almost remote viewing realms or different dimensions. And it's really fascinating because, uh, um, I can't remember where I was going that with that, but it has <laughs> to do with, yeah, like how energetically it's like suddenly the perception flips and you realize that you're not really separate from the reality around you. Like uh, just like you had been to finger, the spoon sort of folds and gives way. This idea of the, like in the matrix movie, when he goes to the Oracle and the Oracle says, there is no spoon. That realization that Neo has is that uh, he, the information of who he thinks he is as an individual, isn't separate from the matrix as a whole. And that that unified field, he's able to be part a, a participant in at a higher level than he thought. Uh, that's so interesting. These spoon bending parties and remote viewing parties. I honestly didn't even know that was a thing, but it makes sense that there would be. Uh, that's really cool. Uh, it, it is fun, but it's it's that group dynamic. It is uh, you can. There's a definite change in the room when something like that happens, and I I think it's you know. We, we live under these uh, cultural norms, uh, acceptable behavior and that sort of thing. And uh, if you are psychic, you learn to um, 
to tamper that and, and not share it with a lot of people. And, 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 um, it can be challenging, you know, I mean, as a kid, if you can see things that you're not supposed to see, I mean, there are not a lot of outlets other than your own journal, I guess, in order to, um, to make sense of it. But when you get a bunch of people in the room together, uh, or thinking the same way, it's almost like, uh, like you've ever, if you ever played in a band, right. Um, there's a certain chemistry between your musicians, your fellow musicians, you're, you're thinking in sync in a, in a, to a certain degree. Right. I mean, yeah. you just kind of know what the, what your bandmate next to you is about ready to play. And, 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 um, I, I just love it. I think it's, uh, I play a little bit of guitar and I just, I love the feeling of, um, joining together with other people to do things. And, and I think that that also applies to psychic stuff too, or, C5 or, or wherever you've got a group mm. that is setting its intentions on things um, to, to come up with something. I think you can, you can bend the rules that we normally live by. And, uh, and that's what happens. I think when, when you're seeing poltergeists uh, in places where UFOs are, are visited or are being seen because um, people are willing to let that data in uh, or let that experience take place when ordinarily they might not be. That makes sense. I love the analogy of the band because really when you're like, let's say you're trying to play the drums or the guitar or especially play the guitar and sing at the same time, Mm -hmm. not only do you have to really let go at a phenomenal level of what you're doing, if you start to try and get really analytical of every single hit of the drums the whole thing falls apart you have to completely let go like we go back to that lens or the aperture into that flow state Mm -hmm. and then not only that join into kind of a vibratory harmony with the other vibe going on around you and then pretty soon you're jamming and so Mm -hmm. it's interesting is this idea with uh your remote viewing is you're kind of jamming with the music of the universe and then if you're make contact maybe you're sort of like our our vibing and putting some music out there and something else picks up that beat and wants to join in with you and you start picking up each other's music and it might not be in english but it's some sort of a phenomenon or extraterrestrial contact or uh, probing into a, a a target where you're not at and so very interesting how it's the same with sports you know you get in that flow state at an energetic level and suddenly you're on fire and you're swishing free throws or three pointers and and you don't even really feel in control of your body and it's something that we reward in society like people who are able to achieve that flow state are like the most talented athletic people or artists that we know of they're the best singers the best musicians and they were probably like very good remote viewers too to be honest yeah that's a really mm-hmm. good point so uh, there's a good point brought up in the comments section by uh, gene saker i'm going to see if i'm fine to pull it up here right. it talks about how you have to establish verifiable accuracy as a viewer with credible instructors and programs on, feed, on feedbackable targets before you'll be taken seriously. And I, I agree with that. So let's say, for example, here, Mark, hypothetically, like if we were going to start our own show on YouTube where you and I were going to say, OK, we're going to go treasure hunting and we're going to find the Ark of the Covenant or lost gold or different things. And we have a catalog of like a thousand different possible targets. Mm-hmm. How could we conduct this so that everybody that watched the show would be convinced of the validity of it at a higher way than they understand remote viewing to be today? So what would you recommend with that? Well, uh, Gene, Gene has a very good point to start with that um, 
in order, you really kind of need to close that feedback loop for remote viewing to be considered legit. So, um, so you can work esoteric targets uh, uh, like aliens or uh, Mars or whatever, but if you if you don't have feedback that sort of shows you that you were there, um, then it is uh, challenging to. I mean, it's 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 very interesting, but it doesn't actually prove anything. So, uh, like Ingo uh, remote viewed. Uh, I believe it was uh, Jupiter, I think, um, or Saturn. Well, Saturn has rings, right? He mm -hmm. was able to determine that Jupiter has rings. And that came through his session before we'd sent out the Voyager probes that it actually uh, confirmed it. Like a Yeah, he drew later. pictures of Saturn with rings before anybody well, knew We know it. Saturn has rings, right? That's the one that you, that's visible. But it was, I think it was Jupiter that, that mm. was surprisingly, it had ring, rings, very mm. uh, subtle rings, but rings all the same so right um but nobody nobody had known that before and it was it was only it was an esoteric target until the feedback came back that you know voyager had detected rings so um and anybody in the chat that you know might have further details about that if i made any mistakes in uh please you know please correct me i believe it was jupiter but but ingo um it was an esoteric target up until that point so um where was i going with all this um what was your Actual well, basically, like if we were going to do like a YouTube show oh, or something like that, that, how could we do it like yeah. in a valid way to like not only convince people that we weren't like planning the remote viewing sessions and faking the drawings, but like what what would you recommend how to do that? So that well, we're... there there are a number of groups out there uh, now that are doing predictions, for instance, um, mm -hmm. uh, who who are kind of looking into the the near future and coming up with things they think might happen within the next month. Um, that gives some credibility if you are posting these videos. This is the great thing about YouTube, because you can you can post the videos up there. You get a timestamp from when the video was put up there, and then uh, later on, you know, if we get close to the time that a particular event or something happens, you can go back and say, well, you know, that was actually posted to YouTube a month ahead of when it actually happened. So I mean, it's hard to argue with um, with results like that if you as long as you trust those timestamps on YouTube, right? So. Um, I think that uh, just the fact that you are willing to put stuff out there ahead of time, for instance, uh, would be a great uh, testament to um, its validity as far as, you know, this, we couldn't have known this ahead of time. Uh, now, when you're doing like uh, searching targets, like uh, treasure hunts or something like that, um, people would just kind of have to take your word that you weren't somehow front loaded on it, or you didn't have some kind of advanced data. Um, there are a lot of really interesting esoteric targets that um, you know nobody might know about, and it would be hard to argue that you had come up with that information uh, without using remote viewing. You know, maybe there's a like a a, a ship that sunk, that the, the Spanish galleon, you know, with a cargo full of gold that uh, had somehow uh, not ever been recorded. You know, there might be something out there under the water that nobody knows about, and uh, all the witnesses died or whatever, and uh, you might be the only one who could find that using remote viewing. And uh, it would be tough to argue with that if, if you said dig here and you found the gold, right? I mean, so you know, there, there are a couple of ways. And for me, you know, it's, I don't ever want to try to convince people that remote viewing is real without having them try it themselves. Because there's, you, could, you can hear me talk about it on and on and on. But until you sit down and you work a target and you know for a fact that you got that data and you weren't supposed to get that data, then then it's just talk, right? It, it won't be real to you, so.
Yeah. So people who may think that they might have this intuitive ability or they're interested or fascinated after watching this show. Uh, first of all, what uh, books do you recommend? Where do you recommend sending people to go get started in learning as well? And then we need to find out what the heck is in your brown paper bag. Have you have you seen any uh, any guesses come across the the chat window? Anybody? I haven't seen any guesses okay. come across. A couple of people have said they think that they might know, but it will be interesting. Anybody that watches this even later on will have to <laughs> have to watch to the end and not cheat. <laughs> well, yeah, when you're doing a session, you, you if you don't write it down, it doesn't count. Okay, so right. if, if you've got guesses, put them in now in the chat window. Let's go ahead and, you know, let anybody, anybody else can see what you got. And I don't see guesses, like write your impressions. Don't just guess, but write okay, your yeah. impressions. So down. if you're in the chat right now, uh, for those of you, there's, it looks like there's 20 people lurking and watching right now. If you saw the paper bag at the beginning, what do you think was inside the paper bag? Your first Because after impression? I show it to you, it doesn't count, all right? It doesn't count, right? So <laughs> I'm willing to be totally yeah. embarrassingly wrong. In fact, I plan on recording uh sessions and stuff like that and trying it so that'd be All really right. so cool if you're if you're interested in learning remote viewing as i was as i was saying on the ucr show the other day it belongs to you it was paid for by your tax dollars it is in the public domain and uh anybody can find resources online for free to learn how to do it now as i mentioned you will never be good unless you are willing to practice and you have to practice 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 to learn how your mind works and to, um, to let go of some of that fear and let go of some of that steering that right. you might be trying to do. Um, you can go to the website of the International Remote Viewing Association, that's irba.org, and it has a, a number of, of resources there to get you started. So if you go to irva.org, you can find uh, example remote viewing sessions that you can try, some, some cool exercises. So you can learn a little bit about how to do it. Somebody in the comment just wrote what I guessed too, what I thought the impression was too. So there's two that were the same, <laughs> mine and somebody in the comments. Sorry. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, it must be interesting, Carl, because you are you are grinning quite a bit there. So we, we will see. We will see. So, so yeah, on that website, now there, Daz shared a website. Is this the one now where it will actually spit up like numbers for you? Yes. You can do example targets there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, so it'll actually give you a blind target with the digits that you can write down and, and do the intuitive drawing and practice mm -hmm. and then click to check yourself to see how accurate you were and validate this for yourself. Uh, right, right. And if you got somebody at home that can practice with you, they can put something in a bag that you're not aware of and you can try guessing it or, I mean, there, there are various ways to do it. It's, it's remote viewing if you are blind to whatever it is you're trying to figure out. That's That's really... A simple way of, of doing remote viewing. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so Jeff, let's uh, let's see. Jeff has got uh, he put a cactus and then said, uh, "Interesting." Second guess was a rodent, and then this one, Matt said, uh, "The first impression they got immediately was an orange, but then was almost positive that it was an AOL." And that's what's funny because that's what I wrote down was if I smelled a fresh orange and got the sensation of like a weight rolling like a sphere. So oh. I don't know. That's what I wrote down. So, that's, okay. so maybe I was just like psychically connected with Matt over there. Maybe uh, you're hungry. I don't know. Aren't you maybe I was hungry. Right now, I don't know. <laughs> uh, let's see. It looks like uh, Chell says uh, deck of cards. Uh, <laughs> Tina says hi. Gene said advanced visual was a harmonica. Interesting. 
Okay, so those are some of the guesses that we got coming back in. So this will be really interesting to find out what was in the bag. All right, well, one other thing I want to say, um, my friend Tunde wrote a book called Remote Viewing UFOs and the Visitors. And this is a series of taskings that he gave to Joe McMonagall on famous UFO cases. Hmm. And if you want to find out what Joe, Joe's one of the best remote viewers in the world. If you want to find out what Joe McMonagall says about some of these famous cases, uh, get this book and uh, you would be surprised. Some of the, uh, some of the cases that I was thought I was familiar with uh, had some very different remote viewing uh, results. So um, hmm. it's called remote viewing UFOs and the visitors. And it's by um, Tunde Atun Rossi. I honestly don't know how to pronounce his last name, but there you go. It's available online at Amazon and a very interesting book uh, if you are learning what remote viewing has to say about some of these interesting phenomena. So, oh, another good book is Daz Smith's, okay? CRV, mm. Controlled Remote Viewing. This is um, partially made up by the Army's C official CRV manual, which I think Paul Smith wrote uh, and is now in the public domain. But it also includes some uh, details about how some of these stages in CRV actually are supposed to work. So uh, get Daz's book, Daz Smith, CRV, Controlled Remote Viewing Manual, and uh, and that can help get you started if you want to really learn how the Army did it. Very cool. Yeah, yeah and Daz is active doing uh, remote viewing uh, live chats and web yes. conferences, and he films and does live remote viewing and uploads the sessions, and the Farsight Institute does a bunch yep. of that. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube for people interested in it uh, to go get involved as well. Uh, one last question from Matt asks, uh, mm -hmm. remote viewing is obviously remote, but does it work through time? Here's this uh, aspect of time coming up again. Yes. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Um, time doesn't work the way most people think. And events that happened in the past in some way are still happening. And those people are still around. And you can actually use remote viewing to connect with those events and connect with those people. Um, if you read some books on remote viewing and you learn a little bit about bilocation, that is a very interesting topic where the remote viewer gets so engrossed in the, the data that they're getting from the site that they suddenly are there at the site and they perceive actually being there. So if you have a remote viewing target of some famous event like uh, Custer's Last Stand or something, for instance, um, you're getting data and all of a sudden you're no longer in the room writing down your impressions. You are actually there watching the arrows fly and the bullets fly. And it is just like you were there, very much like a lucid dream, but, um, but you're there. And so uh, you can experience these historical events just like they were happening right in front of you. In a lot of cases, that's essentially what, what is happening. So uh, it's very interesting. And I can give you a lot more re uh, references for stories from other people on how this, this has happened. It's never happened to me. I'm still uh, early in my uh, training, but um, I've talked with several remote viewers who have interacted with historical figures mm. just like they were right next to them. That's amazing. Yeah, the, the bilocation thing, it seems so much like similar and it echoes back to kind of like that uh, Monroe Institute and the out of body mm. type of training. And I wonder how much of that is all connected with the idea of, you know, they were using hemi-sync and binaural stuff and audio frequencies, mm -hmm. even in the room, bathing the room with it, and to try and trigger out-of-body 
sort of experiences, which you would call out of body. This is where it gets limiting in the words. You call it out of body, but really you're still alive. Your body's still there sitting in the chair, even mm -hmm. capable of talking or drawing, but it does sometimes feel like you're uh, superimposed or super positioned in another spot or in another place in time in the past or present. It's so fascinating. And the idea that you can interact and ask questions, almost like an interview throughout time mm -hmm. with the consciousness of that individual or, or entity really blows my mind. Yeah. Uh, I was reading in the, uh, in the Irva magazine aperture. Uh, I think it's uh, their 2014 edition, Tom McNair uh, is being interviewed and he talked about how he uh, had done a session and all of a sudden uh, Ulysses S. Grant is standing next to him in the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ulysses S. Grant right there in the room next to him. And uh, I don't I don't remember what Tom actually did. I, he was doing doing some sort of session obviously involving him, but he could have interacted with the general there uh, just like he was. Um, alive so that if you think about those kind of cases and then you realize that well that's not supposed to happen because our our traditional view of time is that when something is done it's done and and yeah you can't reach it but you absolutely can with remote viewing it, it, it'll blow yeah. your mind even the concept of the individuality and in the and the where you're sitting in your chair as a soul is really fascinating because yeah. you, you hear these reports as well where almost the person finds himself bilocated to a degree where they're almost experiencing it as the person or as the target, mm -hmm. looking down and seeing their own hands and experiencing yeah. even maybe even being murdered violently yes. or something like that as the victim experienced it. Yes. And that's how they get the perspective of the, uh, of the target. It's, it's uh, fascinating. And so it, it calls to some ethical responsibility and conversation. And I think that's the thing is that, that gets me is that so many people toss this subject to the side because they're either afraid it has something to do that's uh, that, that might be evil or dark or it's going to attract something dark to them and then when it gets treated like oh we're gonna we're gonna remote view the bitcoin prices or we're gonna remote view these fun things people almost react like you're being sacrilegious or or blaspheming something sacred or like you're going to you're meddling with something like playing with a nuclear weapon or something and what as we wrap up with this what do you have to say about all that because i love it i feel like an explorer and adventure of it i you I know, know if you've got a skill our world says that uh you should be able to make a living using that skill right um and especially if you put in time and effort to learn something like remote viewing which as i said can put you out in a vulnerable position you really have to be open to things that you might not have been open to before I personally don't see any problem with using that skill to make a living, right? If you, if you can do it, that's fine. If you want to remote view the lottery numbers, go for it, you know? Um, and I, actually, if you think about it, if uh, word got out that somebody used remote viewing to win the lottery, don't you think that more people might be interested in learning remote viewing? Personally, I think so, right? You know, and what would happen is things like gambling would go away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got lots of stories. You'll have to invite me back. I'll tell you a little bit about there's a group of remote viewers that meet in Las Vegas on a regular basis. Dude. And they place wages based on their remote viewing sessions. I've done it before. It is a blast. <laughs> I need to meet these friends. <laughs> so, yeah, we need to hang out next time you guys go to Vegas and uh, stuff like that. And yeah. Mark, I need to have you back on the show because I really want to talk 
maybe next time I have you back on about bilocation and some of these crazy experiences. And before we go, we have to find out what's in the paper sack, everybody. So all right, we have a bunch of right. guesses so out there. Let's pencils down. Out. Pencils down. Moment of truth. Here we go. We're gonna find out what's Here's in the what bag. Here's what is in the bag. Your remote viewing target, and this is your feedback. Oh my gosh! A pair of handcuffs. Handcuffs. <laughs> Who got handcuffs? Anybody? <laughs> well, I did get the round shape a little bit, I guess. With the cuff. I know Gene <laughs> had a uh, had a view of like a harmonica. That's it's it's metal. I mean, maybe I don't know. You can't can't really t play tunes on these, but I've never. I, you know, I worked in kind of a juvenile prison for five years, and there was oranges at every meal <laughs> i swear no i don't know <laughs> that's a stretch to try and but uh yeah so i got a, a total miss there with a round orange two of us did but uh you never know it's there's a, there's some round to it right a little bit but maybe maybe not orange so that's right so it's super fun to try out and to check it out everybody should go look on the website uh to try out remote viewing for yourself I'd be willing to get it wrong. Open up your mind. If anything, learn meditation and mindfulness. Uh, Mark, if everybody wants to check you out and follow you and see where you're going to be showing up out on the internet, where can everybody find you? Follow me at uh, on Twitter at Mark Turner ETC. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel I'm starting up at Mark Turner ETC. And uh, my website's markturner.net. So. Nice. Thanks so much, Mark, uh, for joining us. And we'll have to have you back. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you so much, Carl. <laughs> Enjoyed it. Thanks so much.